have moved along in our series called Words from the Mountain, and we were in this part called the Beatitudes, which are what Christian scholars would be the most, say would be the most profound words that have ever been spoken. And we've moved through these Beatitudes, and now we're arriving at a new section that we're going to call the Law. And this is all about how God would have us now live. In light of all that's been told of this good news of Christ, now what does that mean for how we should now live our lives? But as we enter into the section, listen, listen, as we enter into the section, before Jesus tells us anything about how we should live, he tells us something that's way more important, who he is. In fact, you see this in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Jesus goes, sorry, not Jesus in the Old Testament. That was last week. Also, if you weren't here last week, you should go back and listen to it because it's this beautiful picture of how Christ, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. But, but, so Jesus is saving the Israelites. What's he do? He saves them out of slavery. He shows them who he is. And then from the mountain, God's commandments come down. I mean, this is essentially what Jesus is doing here. So here's what we see. Before Jesus tells us anything about how we should live, he wants us to know who he is. And last week I started off and I said, for the last 2,000 years, the entire world's been trying to figure out what to make of Jesus. Is he a wise teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he someone that's been misunderstood and his disciples have made him out to be something that he isn't? Is he a crazy person? Or is he really the Son of God and the Savior of the world? And last week we said that, I mean, these are some pretty astounding claims that he makes of himself. So we see last week that he makes this claim that all of the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to him. That he's the fulfillment of it all. I mean, this is the claim of a megalomaniac, someone with these delusions of grandeur, thinking he's something that's far greater than he is, unless it's true. And if it's true, what that means is that we have to now reorient our whole entire lives about who he is. And that means he's far greater than some mere teacher. But it means he's the king. It means he's the savior. And so that's with last week, and this week we enter into a new claim. From the same verses, we see another claim that he makes, because there's a double meaning in our verse, and it, it's this. He hasn't only come to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but listen, he's come because of some, some very personal reason. All of the requirements, this is what today is all about, all of the requirements that God would have of you, Christ comes and accomplishes for you. All that is required of you, Christ comes to accomplish for you. Let me read it to you. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so there's a double meaning here. 
First meeting we covered last week. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to him. So this line that talks about the law, the law is also called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Then when he says the prophets, he's talking about everything else that was written after those first five books. And what he claims is that all of it is pointing directly to him. He's the fulfillment of it. It's all him. It's all about him. It's a crazy claim. Here's the next claim for today. The law is not just what's all the first five books of the Bible, but the double meaning is the law is all that God requires of you. It's the way that God would have you live. It's the way that God sees the way that humanity must live. And so this is God's expectations of us. So you got to think of it like this. So the law is like a cup. And to fulfill the law or to meet the requirements of the law, you are filling that cup all the way up to the brim, keeping it to perfection. And the premise here is that we can't do that. So Christ comes and does it for us. Now, this is an astounding claim again. Like, how can someone just come on the scene and just say, hey, all that's required of you, I've done it for you. I mean, he's making, one, he's making the claims of perfection, and then two, not only is he making the claims that he's perfect, but he's making the claims that he can take his perfect record and give it to you by faith. Paul talks about the same thing in the book of Galatians. If you want to understand this completely, like, next level, just read the book of Galatians today after this is all over. These can't just be words from a teacher because a teacher would never say the things that he's saying. Teachers try to help you change. They try to help you grow. They try to get you to think differently, and he does all of that. But no teacher comes and says to you, hey, by the way, you can't do it, but I'm going to do it for you, and then all of my perfection as your teacher, I'm going to credit it to you. I mean, imagine this. Imagine you're you're in this period in your life where you're just trying to figure things out. And you don't know who you are. And you don't know what you're supposed to do with your life. So you say, I'm going to go on some quest or some journey. And so you set sail across the world. And you go to some distinct land where not a lot of people know about, but you meet the greatest teacher there's ever been. And you sit down under his tutelage and you say, teach me. And he says, okay, but before I teach you anything, I need you to know this. Everything that I say that's required of you, you're not going to be able to do. But it's okay because I'm going to do it for you. And then I'm going to have it all credited to you. And that would sound crazy. Because how could he do that? This is Jesus making a divinity claim. I can't, I mean, one, if somebody wanted to say this, like, one, we know people can't be perfect, and two, we know that they can't credit their record to others. It doesn't make sense. But that's the claim that Christ is making, and that's the claim of Christianity, and that's what grace is all about. Receiving something that he has done on your behalf for you, meeting your requirements, doing it all, all that's required of you, and crediting it to you. You can't dismiss this. So, you got to make a decision about him. Is he a crazy person, or is he a savior? Now, he's pressing in on you, make a decision, and you might not be ready to make a decision yet, and that would make sense that you wouldn't be able to make a decision yet. You're not sure. You would say, you know what, I can't say that he's a crazy person. 
I'm not willing to say he's a crazy person, but I'm also not willing to say that he's Savior yet. But that's what he's pressing in on you to make a decision. And you're having a hard time making that decision. Do you know why? Because when he says he's Savior, it also means that he's Lord and he's, and he's King. And if he's Lord and he is King, then guess what that means? When you go to him, you lose control. When you go to him, he's claiming the status of king. And what do you do for, to a king? You have to listen to what that king says. And you guys, you have something you want to do in your life. So what's keeping you back from him is you think, not, well, if I go to him now, I'm not going to be able to do the things that I want to do in my life, so I'm going to stay at a safe distance from him. I'm going to circle him. I'm going to keep analyzing him till I figure out what to make of him. But I'm not really, even after I figure out what I'm going to make of him, I'm not going to go to him yet because I don't want to lose control. All I'm saying is this. Don't wait too long. And then you say, well, why wouldn't I wait too long? I mean, why wouldn't I just wait all the way up until the end? Why wouldn't I wait until I'm on my deathbed? And then just say, I'm going to go to him by faith. I mean, because it, you can. You can do that. Why wouldn't you do that? You have to listen to what he's claiming. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which means this. The Old Testament's saying, making a lot of promises. And one of the main promises it's making is there's a lot of things that you want. You want rest. You want peace. And you want joy. And the claim is that it is found in him. That means if you're just waiting your whole life, here's what you're missing about Christianity. You think that if you go to Christ, he's going to take away all your joy and he's going to just control your life and you're not going to get to do the things that you want to do and you're not going to have purpose. But what he's saying and what the claim of Christianity is is that you're missing out until you go to him. You think he's taking fun away and in reality he's adding more. Mistake people make all the time. This is what Psalm 23 is all about. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, you are wanting. Why are you wanting? Because you're not satisfied. But if you don't want, it means all the things that you desire deep inside of your soul and your heart are being satisfied by this shepherd. What is Christ called in the New Testament? The Good Shepherd. Meaning, he has come to satisfy every single desire that you have. It's met in him. That's the claim. He doesn't only accomplish what is required of you. He gives you all that your soul longs for. But you keep circling them because you don't believe it's true. All right, let me ask you this. You ever met somebody that just goes to church like they're just like always there, always there? And they're always looking around, judging people, thinking everybody's a big old sinner, and they seem miserable. You know why that's happened to them? They have no idea who Jesus is. They have no idea who he is. They're making the same mistake that we're seeing the people in our verses make, these scribes and these Pharisees. They never go, they, they're never going not just to the one who gives them perfection, because that's what Christ is offering them, but they're not going to the one who gives them joy. So look, it says this, here's the line. Your righteousness must go beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were famous for something. They were strict rule followers. I mean, they obeyed all the rules. They're famous for it. Uh, 
they're the type of people that make you look bad. Like, you know, you know when you've, you see, like, another parent and they're not doing such a great job and you feel pretty good about your parenting, or you see someone treating their significant other not so great, you feel pretty good, or another friend and you feel pretty good about yourself because you're way better than they are, well, guess what? These guys, the scribes and Pharisees, make you look bad. They're following the rules, like, to the T. Their yard looks really good. That's a thing for Floridians. I don't know if you know that. Um, and, and so here, here's how you think of it. Let's say there's a law that says, say the Bible says this law, like you, when you drive your car, you have to drive between the lines and you have to go a certain speed limit. So, okay, so here's what the scribes and Pharisees do. They make new lines to stay in between and then they take the speed limit and they drop it by 10 more just so, just to make sure if they made a tiny mistake, they didn't go outside of the lines further than that. But then guess what? Then they're getting like, well, what if we go outside of this line on accident? And that starts feeling almost as elevated as what the actual law is. So then they make new lines and then they drop the speed limit a little bit more and they keep doing it more and more and then they're freaking out because they have to stay so focused. They have to be so strict about keeping all of these rules to make sure they don't break the law that's outside over here. So you can imagine someone like this, like they're driving, and they're just like this. They're barely blinking, and then a car pulls up next to them. They got the top down, you know, the music is playing, and they look like they're just having a grand old time, and they look over at this person, and they're just like this because they're terrified that they're going to break the law. Like, I mean, it, it is their biggest fear, and there's all this anxiety building up inside of them. That's what this churchgoer is like that is knows nothing of Christ. They're miserable while everybody else is having fun. Why? Because they're missing what Christianity is about. Christianity isn't about following the rules or not following the rules. I want to be careful here. It's not about following the rules or not following the rules. It's being free from the law because Christ has fulfilled the law, but... Even though you are free from the law, you don't desire to break the law because all of your desires have been met in Christ. Let me say it a different way. The claims of Christ is that the reason people don't follow the law is because they have all these desires that are not being met. And so they've got to go outside of the law in order to have these desires met. And so they brush right past the law. Because there's a desire that's not being met. Okay, think about it this way. The person who has everything that they need, they don't steal. Because they have everything they need. This is what Christ is getting at. Or just let me just do it this way to bring complete clarity. So I'm part of a philosophy group that meets once a month. And in this group, we started talking about generations. And a guy made an argument that the greatest generation, those who are born in like the way early 1900s all the, all the way up to like the late 1920s, he said this is called the greatest generation, and they're the greatest generation because they understand their duty. And he said, but the baby boomers, and he was a baby boomer, I'm sorry to all you baby boomers, this is just what he said, he says, they're okay, but they're more like if it, feel, if it feels good, do it. 
And, he, and what he argued, and, and that's kind of about delight, like whatever delights you, go and do. If it feels good, go do it. And what he said is that the greatest generation is the greatest generation because they are all about duty. Now, here's the premise of Christianity. Christ has come and accomplished the law for us. And by doing that, also, he's the one who fulfills our desires. So here's what that means. Here's what it begins to mean for you. The things that are your duty are also the things that delight you. In other words, the goal of humanity, the goal that's deep in our soul is that we would live in such a way that we are doing our duty, but we are delighting in doing the duty. This feels so foreign to us. We think we're going to delight in doing the things that we're not supposed to do. In fact, you tell me not to do something, and I, I want to do it even more. This is, this is flipping it all upside down. Christianity doesn't look like that boring, judgmental person looking at everyone around them, judging them for all of their sins. Christianity looks like this person who is in awe of God for what God has done. He's traded with them his record for theirs, and they're in awe of that. But not only that, they have all these desires that are being met in Christ. So they're just joyful. They're at peace. They're at rest. The angry rule follower knows nothing of the grace of Christ. Nothing. They follow the rules not because they want to, but because they have to. And is that important? Well, it seems to be, because here's what it means. They're not free at all. They're tied to the law, trying to earn their way up to God, thinking that they're actually doing it, but they aren't doing it at all. Look what it says. Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, their rule following was not enough. And guess what that means? If their rule following wasn't enough, that means every single one of us are out. Us normal people who are not as disciplined, we're out. Unless it means something else. It means one of two things when he says this. If you want to enter into the kingdom of God, your, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what, here's what it means. It means one of two things. It means either that Jesus was absolutely perfect, and then he credits his perfection to you. He exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and he gives you your righteousness, or it means that righteousness has little to do with rule following and far more to do with your motives. And I want to argue that it's both. By faith, you not only receive a new record, but you receive a new heart. And this new heart gives these new desires inside of you. And you start desiring Christ, and then you delight in him. And as you delight in him, the things that he loves become the things that you love, and you start doing the things that he wants you to do, because it's a delight to you, not because you have to, but because you want to. It's a new motive, and here's the new motive. The new motive is to love God and love others. That's it. It's very simple. You are now free. He has accomplished everything for you. You're free, so now love God and love others. And what he argues is that until you're free, you're never actually going to love God and love others. If you don't know the freedom that is found in Christ, you won't love God and love others. Now, it's a, it's a bold claim. It's a bit offensive, 
But let me, let me just throw it out. Let me show you why. The scribes and the Pharisees' motives for all that they did was selfish. They kept the law. They gave to the temple. They helped the poor. Why? To build up their records of rights so that they could say to God, God, look, I did everything I'm supposed to do. Now you have to accept me and you have to love me. But they did it for them. It was riddled with a selfishness underneath it. It benefited them. And what Jesus is getting at is when you have to earn eternal life, here's the problem. You're constantly wondering, did God see that? Did God see that? Oh my gosh, did I keep the law enough? Did I do right? Oh no, I just messed up today. What, what about at the end of my life if I mess everything up? Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And you feel all this worry building up inside of you. And guess what you're thinking about? All you can think about is yourself. And if you're measuring up or not, and it starts messing with you, and it starts messing with you emotionally, and then it starts messing with you socially, and as that happens to enough people, friendships break up, and it continues to happen, and then you have a whole culture that's all messed up and selfish and doesn't even think that they are. See, by the time your motives for what you do reach the surface, they've gone through so many filters that you think that you're doing the things that you're doing out of pure motives, but it's not. Because you're not free. Until Jesus accomplishes all that is required of you, you won't be free and you will, you will, you're never, your motives will never be for the love of God and the love of others because you're constantly going to be worried about, but what, but what about me? You know, like, am I okay? Now, I'm not saying that if someone isn't a Christian, they can't be moral. That's not what I'm saying at all. Please do not hear me saying that. We're all made in the image of God, and as being made in the image of God, we are all wired to understand there is a right and there is a wrong. The thing that the Christian has realized is that for their whole lives, until they became a Christian, everything that they did was riddled with selfish desires that they could not seem to break no matter how hard they tried. And even after you become a Christian, you realize much of what you do is for that. If you want your delights and your duties to match up, you just have to find grace. Or let me, let, me, let me say this. Before you find grace, you will only delight in the wrong things or you will delight in the right things, but it will always be for the wrong reason. Is that an arrogant claim of Christianity? Look at what Jesus says. His claim is that he's the claim, he is claiming to be the fulfillment of everything that we want and desire. Now look, look at what happens. If you don't have what you want and desire, and he is the very fulfillment of your wants and desires, that means if you don't go to him, you're settling for something less than him. And that becomes the very definition of what sin is in the Bible, is settling for something less than God than Christ. And so here's what that means. You begin to be riddled with things that are not right within you because you aren't chasing him. And so you do something that's great. You love people, but at the same time, or you, or you don't steal or you do something, but at the same time, you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And it's because he is not the object of your ultimate desire. And until he is, 
you won't be satisfied, and your dissatisfaction will cause you to do things with the wrong motives. This is just him pushing in on you. Make a decision about him. What will you make of him? Is he a crazy person? Is he your, your savior? And you won't be able to make a decision, a logical decision, though, unless you listen to him. And when you really listen to him, here's what you realize. You either have to kill him or you have to let him be killed in your place. He's claiming too much to have a nominal response to him. And that's why he was killed. He was killed because of the claims he was making. The, the religious people of the day called him a blasphemer, meaning he was making himself equal to God. And by doing that, the, the law would say he should be put to death. And so they put him to death for that. But he also died in order to fulfill the requirements that God has for you where you couldn't measure up. And so he measures up for you, lives the perfect life, dies the death that was ours. You either kill him for trying to become your king or you make him your king and you let him die in your place. Now, he's not here for you to kill, like, per se, like he was 2,000 years ago. But the decision is still there. What will you make of him? You either kill him off in your life, or you make him your king, and you allow him to give his life in your place. You either take him to the cross, or you let him go to the cross in your place. Here's, here's the point. You can't have the kingdom without a dead king. Jesus' mission was to come and die. It was not to be a good teacher, though he was that. His mission was to come and to die. But his death is not the end of the fulfillment of everything that's been saying in the Old Testament. Could death hold him? No. Was, could the cross kill him? No. Was the grave weighty enough to keep him down? No. Because the same way that you can't have the kingdom without a dead king, you also can't have the kingdom without a risen king. A king that not only takes your record of wrongs and makes them his and gives you his record of rights, but he then, after he dies, rises to be the very delight of your soul. That's what you want. That's what you're searching for. That's what's brought you here today. You're, there's a bit of you that, that you're hoping that maybe this is true. There's a bit of your soul that's hoping that's true. Or there's a bit of you that has completely surrendered this and you believe it's true, but you keep forgetting it. And, and if you're a Christian and you're like me, you're thinking to yourself right now, well, I don't always delight in doing what is right. In fact, I delight more in doing what's wrong a lot of the time. Joe, it's okay. You're just saying, Joe, when you said that, you're just saying what everybody else is thinking. All right, so this is what it means to be a Christian. 
Look, when Jesus is on the cross, what does he say? He says, it is finished, meaning it's done, it's accomplished. Everything that he has set out to do, he's accomplished there on the cross, but guess what? So it's all accomplished, but it's not yet been applied to you. Meaning this, you have yet to reach who you are meant to be. That's a promise that has not yet been fully applied to you, but everything that needs to happen for it to be applied has already been accomplished by Christ in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. But here's what we do have now. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does what? The Holy Spirit is your helper, your counselor, the one who is within you, teaching you to become who you're meant to become, slowly changing your motives over time. And the Holy Spirit right now is telling you something very important that you need to hear. Everything's going to be okay. You're free from the law. Everything that has been required of you has been accomplished, and now you are free. And you are free to just simply love God and love others. Knowing that it's good. Knowing when you mess up, it's okay. And knowing that every time you do mess up, there's a reason why. And you know the reason. It's because you're not delighting in him. And so you go back and you delight in him. And then he starts changing you. And you say, okay, and you go back and you sin no more. And then you go and you sin again. And you say, what have I done? And you say, oh, I know what I've done. I'm not delighting in him. I'm becoming a rule follower. And I'm hating that I'm following all these rules and it's becoming such a duty to me instead of a delight to me. What is wrong with me, you say? Well, you got to go back to him and delight in him. And then you do, and then you're changed, and then you go and do it all over again. And you say, oh my gosh, I'm sinning again. What is wrong with me? And then you're reminded, oh yeah, I'm not delighting in him. And the cycle just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again until you learn to delight in him more and more and more. Tomorrow, it will not look like you've delighted in him more than you have today, but if you look at your life in five years from now, it will. Be patient with yourself. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. The Holy Spirit's saying everything's going to be okay. Chill out, man. You're good. God has done everything that's required of you. Be free. Just go love. And let me just end with this line from Galatians 2.11. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, we pray now that the truths of your word might become true to us and that we would see that everything's okay. And we would go to you as our good shepherd who gives us everything we want. And when we don't believe it's true, we pray that you would help us in our unbelief. And God, when we become these rule followers who are judgmental and boring and manipulative to others, I pray that you would not just forgive us for that, but you would redirect us to delight in you so that we might have some joy in our life. God, don't let us become those rule followers. Let us become people who live like we're meant to live because we are free to live that way. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.